Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 84. Today we have with us Seth Radwell. Seth received a master's degree in public policy from Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. He holds a Bachelor of Arts degree, summa cum laude, from Columbia University. Um, he then spent several decades in the business world, including serving as president of eScholastic and CEO of the Proactive Company. He's the author of the Amazon best-selling book, American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold the Secret to Healing Our Nation. We're really excited to have him here with us, excited to talk about to talk to him, and uh, he's got a really interesting perspective. Um, he's representative of a, of a possible direction and route out of the many of the political problems that plague us today. Thanks for coming, Seth. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you, Dan and Brad, for doing what you do. Our pleasure. I was going to say there's a, there's a more personal way in which uh, we have a connection here. But maybe Brad can explain that. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. So you've you've done you've worked for a lot of businesses, Seth, but in particular, proactive. I mm. find it funny that uh, as you were were running a juggernaut like that, we had a personal connection because I uh, definitely used proactive in my teenage years. So ah. so if you had an especially good quarter while you were CEO, <laughs> I'd I'd like to uh, say you're welcome for that. Well, I always wondered why I had such a great sales bump a couple of years ago. Now I understand. That's that's what that it was. was. It all comes together. The, the acne was that bad. It was this level of <laughs> no, but but seriously, Seth, you've spent a lot of time in business, and clearly you've been very successful. So, what are you doing talking to us here about a book that you just wrote on politics? Well, so so uh, that is a question I discuss often because it comes up my whole career. As you noted, it's really been in business. I, I, I was a marketing person. That's where I built my background. And I started to lead uh, consumer brand companies in various forms of marketing. And, you know, even though I, I mean, my roots are in public policy, I, my studies were in that field, my liberal arts education. But after grad school, I quickly started building a, quite a profitable career in business. So what, what happened was I took a hiatus. A couple of years ago, I made a decision that I wanted to take a break to understand what was happening in our country, because I felt that we were at a, a critical point. Uh, it, if we didn't take a different path, we risked not being able to hand a democracy to our kids. So, so my path was to take a hiatus from my business career and start doing research, which led to American schism. It, it's interesting you say that. I'm curious about why it is that you took a hiatus and then turned to studying and writing a book. Because usually what happens is people, people get interested in politics through, you know, maybe there's a particular politician they don't like or some, some cause that they really support and they pay more attention. And then they immediately jump in at the level of, of the political parties with the cause of you know, that's, that speaks to them, maybe based on how they grew up or, or whatever right. it may be, right? And they, they, they immediately join a team and they get to work, right? You, your marketing skills could have been a valuable benefit to, to some party and you could, have, you could have rose through the ranks probably rapidly and, you know, and, and been influential that way. Why turn to, to study? Why turn to other things? Well, that's a, it's a great question. There's a couple of answers. The first one is that I believe the entire political establishment is broken. And so I had no desire to write anything partisan. I was, I was more interested in, in two phenomena that I noticed. So the first one, over the past couple of years, I would argue that our political discourse has collapsed. And it's been replaced by a model of rancor and acrimony 
that is reflective of media. So, so, you know, I was a marketer for most of my career and I learned how to use marketing tools. And a lot of that is about in the digital age is about using data to manipulate what people think. And what happened was I watched as, as that model, which incentivizes whoever shouts the loudest took over much of the public debate. So, so one phenomenon is that I was convinced our public discourse had collapsed. But the second phenomena that really drove me to study and write this book, Dan, was that I noticed that my peers, private sector leaders, uh, for, fellow CEOs, CMOs in the industry, well, decades ago when I first built my career, private sector leaders were open to discussing public policy issues. But I noticed that in recent years, politics became like a third rail. They didn't want to touch it. Private sector leaders were afraid of bringing on the wrath of some group if they spoke out on anything. And as a consequence, they kind of put their head down and stopped talking. Now, that, see, so, so that combination of a public uh, debate, political debate that's collapsed and a private sector that won't engage, to me, that was a formula for disaster for our democratic republic. Mm -hmm. and, you know, a democracy is based on a productive conversation amongst educated citizens. That's what's required. And of course, that, you know, that, those two phenomena led me back to my early studies in the Enlightenment because invariably the modern society is very much a, a product of the Enlightenment, which we could talk more about, but, but that's where the philosophy or the, the idea of the social contract in its modern form was born. So, of course, that's where I had to go back to is part of my goal of the book was to do an investigative tracing of the, the roots of our divisions, where they came from. And that led me back to the founding of the country and the Enlightenment. That makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it, it's just interesting and, and so so different from the trajectory I mentioned before that, that so many people are there, there are so many ready made answers to the questions you were asking. And so for you to go back to, to the roots, I think is, is extremely worthwhile. And something we try and encourage people to do is that uh, so many people have only heard one side of the story, not even heard the other side. And, and ultimately there's more than two sides anyway. <laughs> they haven't even heard the other parties take really. And, and so it's worth, it's worth reviewing these things. So, so you get into the history, you get into the enlightenment philosophers. What, what do you find there? A couple of things it's important for your listeners to understand, you know, the reason why the Enlightenment was so important was it was a completely new direction of thinking away from centuries of, of focus where faith and society's rigid structure were dominant to a, a new way of thinking based on the capabilities of human beings for observation and reason. So that's the overall framework. So within that context, there was a political philosophers who became what we call today the social contract thinkers. And they, they looked back at ancient forms of democracy and other forms of government in, in ancient times and through all the, the Middle Ages. And they, they wrote a lot about what, why form a society? What is a social contract all about? And that's where it gets interesting because our founders, of course, were students of this movement. They were quite involved in it. Right. And there was a schism during this time between two schools of political philosophy that ended up having a huge influence on our country. And in the book, I characterize them as the moderate and the radical Enlightenment schools. But what it really boils down to, to, and to simplify for your listeners, 
people like in the American side, because I talk a lot about the European side as well, which was very influential. And, and in Europe, it was people, you know, the moderates were people like Locke and Rousseau, people that your readers may have, may have heard, your listeners may have heard about or read a little bit about. In the U.S., there was a huge schism, hence the name of the book, American Schism, between people like John Adams and Alexander Hamilton, who were essentially aristocrats. They were elite, educated leaders, and they formed the moderate school. And the radicals were people like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine, who formed the radical school. And they, they contended, they fought for prominence about whose model of the America, of the United States, w- would prevail. So let me just spend a minute on that, because oh, the, the main differences between the schools, for your, for, again, for your listeners, I mean, the book goes into a lot of detail, but to simplify, the first difference is that for the moderate enlighteners, both in Europe and the States, they had an interesting prescriptive for what to do in this social contract. You know, when they looked at who should lead, who should administer society as part of this contract where people give up some liberties, but are then protected in terms of their property and their person by by the state, who's going to regulate that? Because for centuries at that point, it had been monarchies who abused their power. So who are going to control the monarchies? And for the moderates, the answer was that the, the people that should govern were, maybe not surprisingly, were themselves. <laughs> people who were enlightened, <laughs> aristocrats who had education, since many of the people in the 18th century yeah, were not educated. Say, yes, yes. They, they, they were the enlightened people, people like John Adams, who was a leader in the colonies. There are many others. Whereas the radicals had a very different prescription. For the radicals, and this really comes out of the French radicals, uh, people like Diderot and and Condorcet, which are are in the book, the radicals believed that the only legitimate form of democracy was, uh, was, I'm sorry, only legitimate form of government, I should say, was a representative democracy, a government of the people. And that was very much what was championed by Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Paine, the three most prominent radicals in our revolution. And, And this notion of decentralized government of a bottom-up government of the people was in fact not the moderates. People like Locke and Rousseau recommended aristocratic governance. And it was the radicals who had this kind of, what today would be called more libertarian, this this, fear of centralized power and this this goal for having decentralized government of the people. Now, now what happened, of course, is that this has evolved a lot over the, over the century. So one of the things the book does is it traces the evolution of these two competing schools of thought. Uh, and, and that's very much what the journey of American schism is, is looking how we initially had this schism in the 18th century, which, of course, led to two, our first two political parties. Interestingly enough, you had the Federalists of Hamilton, who were you know, the centralized, you know, let's construct yes. a government that mm-hmm. works. And you had the decentralized Democratic Republicans of, of Jefferson, which were the first two parties. We can talk more about that. But but the point is that this initial schism, while it's gone through many iterations, I'm convinced is at the root of much of what divides us today. You mentioned the the radicals were very much for democracy. And I'm curious, would you say this is a question of, of degree or serious difference in principle? Because the, the moderates also distrusted government to some degree, right? Yes. The, the, yes. the founders who, are, who you described as moderates were very dedicated to uh, to trying to check the powers of government. Yes. Um, there, is, there is an element of aristocratic 
rule in terms of the way they see elections going and and uh, you point out particularly the senate as a as a, an election of people who were elected it's a if an election gives you a kind of uh, superior cut of people per se or if it refines refines a body of people by having them select one person to represent them and you get a thus get something more you know higher up than the senate has another layer on top of that yes. where, where you go through that same process um but what 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 do you see as the the difference there is it is it that they just weren't quite as committed to democracy or is there a difference in principle there okay. that's substantial there there is it's very interesting question let's go a little bit deeper now so the model for the moderates came out of john locke's work and people like montesquieu the french moderate right which right. was all about balancing power. So yes. the, challenge, the challenge for the moderates was, hey, we have this executive who in Europe, by the way, was a king or a monarch. Mm-hmm. And since the Magna Carta, we've been trying as nobles to make sure that the monarch stays within a set, doesn't go crazy and, and you know, right, right. basically not oppress people to such a degree. So it was, a, it was a manner, it started out with how do we balance these powers? And so Montesquieu, who was a brilliant thinker, he really looked at ancient forms of government and defined kind of what today is, the, what we think of as the three branches, the bran- legislating, creating laws, ex- administering the laws in an executive and adjudicating those things and Mm -hmm. the judicial branch. And and what Montesquieu was brilliant at was how to balance those three branches. Now, so so that's what people like John Adams, who was so well-read, and and all of the the founders from Jefferson to Adams, they were all very well-read in all these systems. But for them, the, the best way to think about it is the model, and this is embodied by Alexander Hamilton, the model was competence we have for the, for the government to work on behalf of the people we need to have competence so when hamilton was building basically what was behind the constitution he recognized that to solve problems the best and the brightest were required what today we would call the elite let me try to paint this as a little bit of a picture for your listeners because it's one of the things the book does in the first section is go through the experience of the radical period of 1776 when the declaration was signed, which was a period when the radical model was prominent. Up until 1787, when the constitution was drafted, which is 11 years, there was a huge swing from the radical side to the moderate side. So that's like the first big movement in, in the political winds. Now let's talk about that for a second. Why is that so? Well, first of all, let's go back to the uh, spirit of 1776. So here you have, we have this mother central power, England, who's taxing us unfairly and has standing armies everywhere. And the spirit of the declaration, which was mostly written by Jefferson, mm-hmm. was an incredibly radical spirit of, of it's, it's basically a, an enlightenment argument, which says that, you know, government is formed uh, f- by the people to to protect fundamentally life liberty and the pursuit of happiness that's what that's what a government is for and if the government by the way and if the government is not doing that and here in the declaration will list all this empirical evidence about why it's not doing right, it right. we have the right to form our own government that in <laughs> essence is the declaration now now why do i say it's radical well first of all it's clear in the declaration that the government is bottom up of the people number 1 Number two, 
the original formula that Locke wrote about extensively in the British model was about protecting the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm sorry, and property. Um, life, liberty, and property. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 was, it was Jefferson yes. who replaced property with pursuit of happiness. Now, yes. why is that radical? Because in those days, very few people had property. The, the, the people who had property were the elites. But pursuing happiness is a much more broad universal right. I mean, everyone has has the 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 uh, the the goal of pursuing happiness in their life, which was part of Jefferson's model. Now, what's so ironic, of course, about this is for Jefferson that meant like white males, right? Who had you know land who had mm -hmm. landed. I don't want to overstate that it was this, and but but the spirit of the Declaration, the the aspiration that Jefferson intended was much broader than just uh, uh, white men. And, I, and the book goes into why that is. Now, so that if that was a radical era, what happened? So the war is now, so the, we fought a, a pretty bloody war with Britain. It's now a couple of years later, it's 1783, was winding down. And Before you jump to 1783, yeah. let me just note one quick thing on that. The uh, yeah. you mentioned Jefferson uh, included uh, white males in that. I'm not sure he would. Um, Jefferson, in, in fact, in particular, in you may know this, uh, he he included in the Declaration of Independence originally a, a clause that actually addressed slavery. You're probably familiar yeah, with this, and, right? Of course. And, and right. Seth addresses that in the book. He talks yeah, about okay. the fact that that there's definitely room for interpretation that yeah, okay. Jefferson may have meant more than that, even though at the time in practice that wasn't actually included. Oh, he, he, he yeah. did. I mean, I'm convinced that I, you know, th so I was I was pleasantly surprised by your opinion of Jefferson. He uh, okay. Well, it's, it's tricky. So, like so whenever that. whenever you discuss Jefferson, you have to recognize that there are there are Jeffersonian scholars who spent their life dedicated to understanding Jefferson, who to yes. me is the most enigmatic figure of our founders. And, and uh, so I, I don't pretend, I'm not a Jeffersonian scholar, but I've read many of them as, as you see in the book. Uh, but I think what's important for us to understand is, as Lincoln much later told us, the credo of the country was the declaration and it's defined yes. very broadly. Now at the time, and that's kind of the whole, my whole point of where I was going to, how did we get to this very broad egalitarian credo to 11 years later, basically, we have a constitution that's very moderate. First of all, in the constitution, you only have one aspect that's, that's representative, which is the House. The Senate at the time was aristocratic. It wasn't, it wasn't dem democratic at all. And the executive was quite powerful, whereas in the radical model, centralized power was what was very much abjured. So, so the, the re, and, and this is why the book, I think, is goes into this in detail. It's, it comes down to what, what, what was happening on the ground. So as I was going to go there, it's in 1783, the war's over, and we have this huge problem, which is we have quite a set of problems. The first one is, how the heck are we going to pay for this war? <laughs> we had this huge debt. Right. Uh, number two, we how are we going to take what are now 13 very different co uh, colonies and get them to have a coordinated policy towards raising funds, towards um, interstate commerce, and maybe most important at that point, to foreign policy? Because as a young country, we needed allies. How are 13 colonies going to have uh, be, be able to build an alliance with France, for example. So, so the point is, is that it was the moderates that had the experience of governing in their colonies. 
And it ended up that they had the solutions to some of these problems where the radicals were somewhat idealistic and didn't. So, so it was the, the moderates, people like Alexander Hamilton, who kind of quantified basically what today we would call this problem solving set of approaches, which became the Constitution. Now, mm-hmm. what, it's also interesting for your listeners because it's a fascinating kind of personal story as well. Jefferson at this time, when the, when the Constitution was drafted, Jefferson is a way, he's an ambassador to France. So he's not in the room. And Benjamin Franklin is quite ill. He's elderly. And he's the only radical in the room because Thomas Paine wasn't included. And Madison, who is the, really the drafter of the Constitution, mm-hmm. becomes the, the intermediary. He's running back and forth, getting notes from Jefferson and working with Hamilton to, to try to come up with what is this grand compromise between these two models, which is the Constitution. So that in and of itself, the the mechanics of what created it, and I've I've done a lot of research on this, is fascinating in its own right. But one of the reasons that uh, the Federalist Papers, uh, which was, of course, the the documents that were written anonymously by by, um, Hamilton and Madison and John Jadis, to a lesser degree. Yeah, a much lesser degree. To to, uh, market the Constitution to, to the people. The reason why that document today is so important, because in fact, what Madison does in much of that, in many of those uh, papers, is articulate how the model of the Constitution balances both the radical model and the moderate model, how it has elements of both. And the reason why the Federalist Papers is such a masterful political treatise today is because it takes these two different contending views of government of this decentralized uh, uh, state, you know, state-led, local-led governance model with this need for a central model and balances them. And that, that's why uh, it's such a wonderful document that many, if you do take, if, if your listeners have taken political science courses, they undoubtedly have read the Federalist Papers or, or looked at it um, because it yes, does this sure. kind of articulation yeah. of these different models. So, but, so but for my point, I think though, what's important for your listeners to take away is that these, the founders were by no means uh, in sync. They, they were, they, it became terribly bitter and acrimonious, much like today by, by, you know, in fact, one of George Washington's greatest addresses was his farewell address when he warns everyone. He had seen what was happening between the bitterness and the uh, acrimony between uh, Hamilton and Jefferson and, and, and basically warned that if we let partisan politics become more important than our interests in our credo as a country, we risk, we risk a lot. And he was turned out to be quite prescient in that warning. Yes, I, I concur with that. Reading, reading the farewell address sometimes, is, I mean, just listening to you talk about it, it gives me chills a little bit here. There's, just, there's wisdom there. Yeah. Later in this conversation, as we look at the solutions you're proposing, which is really important because so many people look at politics and, and, and this has been Brad and I at different points and just been like, there's nothing to be done. You know, like maybe go, go do something at the city level or the state level, but, but just avoid the, the big mess that is politics. And we want to get to those. But uh, in order to do that, I think it's really important here to, to, to try and get this distinction clear. You mentioned uh, democracy again versus aristocracy. Um, if, if you wanted a, a representation of the people in a democratic form, there's a variety of ways you could do it. And I think of the Athenians who, who drew lots, right, for a lot of the positions. Yes. And the idea being that 
uh, random chance was <laughs> was in some ways a you know in in having frequent turns you would get you would get cuts of all of the people in practice. Um, one of the reasons that's not common, and one of the reasons the founders directly argue, is that having a vote introduces an, an aristocratic element because they will pick someone who is, and not always, <laughs> I can think of some exceptions off the top of my head, but, but will tend to pick someone who is a cut above in some sense. You say the radicals are for democracy, if we've right. arrived at the radical uh, vision of democracy, what would that look like? Okay, so, so the, the radical formula would be closest today to, I think, what is represented by libertarian philosophy, which is, is that it's decentralized, in fact, so the, a federal government should have, centralized power should always be something to be wary of. And decision-making and governance should be as close as possible to the people. And therefore, uh, the 10th Amendment and the, the amendments in general to the Constitution are extremely important because without the amendments, the Constitution never would have gotten adopted. It was, it was these amendments that guaranteed individual and states' rights that were so fundamental to allowing the kind of the radicals of the day to, uh, to, to embrace it. Now, what I think is interesting is, and the book goes into this, that the there were other interesting aspects to, to, to the differences between the radicals and the moderates. And, and one is the notion of religion and its role in state affairs. It was, it was the radicals of the time that were very uh, cautious of any state sanctioning of religion. In fact, Jefferson famously said, we should have not only freedom of religion, but freedom from religion. And, uh, and, the, and the moderates uh, uh, embrace the church as playing more of a role. Now, this goes back to Europe. Let, let me just go give a, a little bit of a side note here. The French radicals had documented in great detail how for centuries, the church and the monarchy had colluded to oppress the people. That was the model. Like the two for the first two estates <laughs> kind of in, 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 in sync to make sure the masses were quiet. Yes. And so the the radical, the French radicals documented this. And it was they who insisted that there was a a whole, there's a philosopher named Olbach who insisted there was a complete separation of of church and state. The the moderates didn't believe in that. Now, why is that important? Because, you know, it turns out that after our founding period, which is maybe arguably the most secular in our history, there was the Second Great Awakening. And ever since, religion has played a huge role in the political atmosphere. And so it, it's hard. So when you try to translate the radical and moderate schools to today, it's almost, it's, it's kind of alluded because of this third force, which in the book I describe as counter-enlightenment, is the faith-based force. Yes, and yes, that, explain that, and that, that becomes, unless you understand how the counter-enlightenment thinking has affected our body politic, it's hard to understand. And that's, that's notable today because when, I, when you get to the third part of the book where I do talk about solutions, one of the key aspects is, is how faith is, is hugely important in our society. I mean, most humans on the planet uh, have faith as part of their core essence. But the question is if faith becomes uh, align with one political side or movement, it becomes, it could be dangerous. And that's often what's happened in America. So you have to kind of get into these discussions to see, for example, how populism, which 
on one hand is a very radical idea. The notion of an egalitarian movement has been uh, used by popular politicians as a political tool to gain power. And so the notion of what, what we would think of as what the term populism is so is so difficult to, to grapple with because there really are two kinds of populism that have been rampant in American politics over the centuries. I mean, one is this bottom-up populism where people want more power, more, more, more voice in government. It's That started notably in the um, Farmers' Alliance after the Civil War up through the Progressive Era, and it was very much a bottom-up movement. But at the same time, there, were, there, there have been people in power or looking for power who've used populist arguments to curry favor with the masses. And, yes, that's, and that goes back to Jackson, right? really. Yeah. So, 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 so dissecting all this, I mean, I wish, I wish it was simpler, but it's why the book <laughs> is, not, is not 100 pages. It's yes, a yes, longer. this is, I mean, this it, is it, history. It, I think, it, uh... it, 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 it's, it's complex. Now, despite all that, despite this, this uh, populism, or, or, or let's, let's call it radical enlightenment framework and moderate, the bottom line is there are few met that when you look through history and the book is, goes through five episodes of our history there are few secret formulas that are fundamental to pro to making progress and mm -hmm. when we've ignored those things we've done so at our own peril so so let me say it say it this way there have always been huge differences disagreements amongst americans on many issues and over history when we've had those disagreements at times the conversation has been has been uh, um, dominated by passions, and at times it's been devoid of reason. At other times, it's been balanced. So uh, when it's been when when reason and rational thinking and compromise are not involved, we usually end up with things like the Civil War. When we have a balance of passion and reason, and data and data and and compromise we've often made huge strides. And so the, 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 what the book does in the third section, just to fast forward, is it says there are two, if we're going to have a functioning government in this social contract that we have, which, by the way, is the greatest experiment in self-government in the history of the world. Okay, that's, that's how so, the founders so, declared it. And I think it's so exactly. I, I'm, I'm very bullish about even though we're it seems like we have dark days in, in, in front of us. I'm overall bullish. And the reason why is we have to we have to do two fundamental changes, and I'm, I'm going to try to make this easy. This goes back to my my background as a business problem solver, right? So I'm not a political hack. So, <laughs> so there, there's there's basically two things we have to do. One are a set of structural changes that that it turns out make our functioning government at the federal level at least not work, and the other, maybe even more important, are a set of mindset changes. And the mindset changes are easy. It's about rejecting the way we're talking to each other today. It's, a, it's about rejecting this notion that because you know, you're from a red state or a blue state or we disagree, that we can't respect each other's point of views and we demonize each other. I mean, that, that whole model of how we talk to each other, it, which is very much driven by what I just discussed before, this media model, is completely counterproductive. And I can give you some examples of why. One great one is immigration, the set of problems associated with immigration. <laughs> so I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. So, so, the, so this mindset has to affect everything we do. It's, it's why, for your listeners, I'm now launching a campaign on campuses called the FU campaign. 
It's for students. <laughs> F-U. It's now, a subtle F- name. I like F- it. F-U stands for fight unreason. And your listeners can find out more at fuwr.org. But the basic yeah. premise is that I'm asking college students to take a pledge to re- completely reject the way we talk to each other today and, and have a more productive conversation, which, by the way, you guys are part of. I mean, when people who are discussing these issues intelligently and with respect are, are to, in my mind, the solution to social media and the world screaming at each other. Okay, now let me come back for a second to the structural changes. Why do I say there should be structural changes? Well, it turns out the founders were quite brilliant in recognizing that in formulating this blueprint for the American experiment, they, they could never anticipate all the changes that would likely happen over the generations. And that is why they made it mendable. The Constitution was supposed to change every generation. Now, what's happened, if, and I, I, can, I can talk to you more about why this has happened, but basically, somehow we've come to believe that the Constitution is set in stone. And, you know, the last serious amendment was in 76. So it may be that, unfortunately, we've made the, it, it too difficult to modify the Constitution, but that was the founders' intent. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of a lot written about this to, to 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 document and support what I'm saying. But so, uh, what do we do? What, what when I say structural changes, what do I mean? Well, for example, I don't think the founders thought that it was wise to have career politicians who spent more of their time and energy and money about getting reelected than about solving problems, right? Whereas now our entire political establishment is focused on getting reelected. And they spend much more time on that than, than in solving public, sol- public policy problems. Yeah, I heard the numbers something as long as much as some of them spend as much as 20 hours a week. That's, that's insane. Yeah. Like they, they don't have time to even do their, you know, do the work there, let alone and, and raise money. And that's, and oh, that's only one of many problems. It's yeah. become, so, so when I say structural change, one of the examples I talk about in the book that I think is quite important are term limits. I used to be against term limits for a whole bunch of reasons, but I think that given the money and time that politicians, especially at the federal level, spend on, on this, um, have, have made it, uh, have swung the argument to the other side. I think we should have discrete term limits, and I talk about that in the book. That's one example. But there are other ones. I mean, I think clearly, you know, the way that money affects politics today, ever since Citizen United has gone out of hand. And I do think we need, and I, again, I talk about this in the book, some-, some like Campaign some reform. Campaign finance reform, yes. yes, I talk about mm-hmm. that. But I'll give you another one that's really interesting. Like um, one of the things that I think would be a great structural change is ranked choice voting. So, so you know, what, what ends up happening in today's model often is that because the two parties, political parties control the conversation, Whenever there's a third party candidate, they end up being a spoiler. They take votes from one of the first two yeah, and help best. the other one win. Mm-hmm. Best, now, yes. in, in ranked choice voting is a simple uh, change that's shown to more accurately reflect the desires of citizens. I mean, basically, I think your, your listeners hopefully know what it is. You just yes, rank we, the, your, yes, your we discussed it. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so think about this for a second. If I am voting, if I'm doing ranked choice voting as a, as a citizen and I vote number one candidate X, Sam, and Sam ends up coming out last in the round. In, in the old model, my vote's thrown away. That's it. Mm. In ranked choice voting, I get to vote again. 
my second choice candidate now gets my vote. I mean, so it, it more adequately reflects the, the, the desires of the people. And it, then it also takes the, the problem of being a spoiler out. So yeah. in essence, it allows for third parties and many other things like that. It allows for more voices yeah. in the problem solving. Now, it's not surprising since the Republicans and Democrats control the conversation. It's not they don't want that. <laughs> they they, they don't want they, a third party. That doesn't help them achieve their goals. <laughs> but guess what? The government's supposed to be of the people. It's not of the of the governing so the, of, the, of the governors. So, you know, for, from my perspective, it's it's very beneficial. And that's an example of a structural change that has nothing to do with requiring an amendment to the Constitution. Yes. In fact, it's starting to happen in in, in different communities today, this ranked choice voting model. So so. So I think th- those are two examples of structural changes that easily could be adopted that would help make our government more reflective of the desires of the populace. So we've got the Enlightenment that t- took place. You've got a schism that takes place in America between the moderate Enlightenment and the radical Enlightenment. Moderate Enlightenment being more interested in limiting the scope of government, but not radical democratic forms. Then you've got the radical enlightenment, which is looking for egalitarianism, equality, democracy as their main priorities. That schism continues through American history and you have a a back and forth between them along with the counter enlightenment. And then you've got your, your specific goals and things that we can first steps. I think it's what you call it in the book of, of ways that we can move forward. Yes. And and, you know, reading this book, you're, you're killing me because there's a thousand things that, that I would love to spend an hour talking with you about. You know, you <laughs> yeah. brought up ranked Historical choice voting trends, yes. and, I, and I wanted to throw out everything else we we're going to talk about. And we'll just talk to you for an hour about ranked choice voting, because that's <laughs> yeah. something that we've talked about before and we're passionate about. Right. But but instead of doing that, I want to I want to bring up a, a couple of questions that I had when I was reading your book that kept coming back to me again and again. And a couple areas that I was confused on when I read your book that I'm hoping to get some more. insight from you about and and the first one is religion i i understand the reason enlightenment and and both radical enlightenment and moderate enlightenment took a step away from religion and towards reason and and how level of government especially at the level of government and how incredibly pivotal that was in terms of of world history in increasing freedom for all and how and how for for many generations, especially in, in, in Europe, uh, religious institutions were an instrument of oppression that was used in conjunction with monarchies, with aristocracies to oppress the people. I see that. What I don't see is that today. I don't see that in American history in the same way. I mean, American history has always been incredibly religious. I mean, part of the reason that I believe the founders were were pushing back against religion i mean at the time most of those states had had state religions four, you know four of them at least I four of them maybe, maybe not most six. yeah that may be an exaggeration had but at some point religions, had yes. established religions near that time that established religions were an established thing and that they were pushing against that but since then i haven't seen religion as a counter enlightenment force in fact there are times in your book where you talk about religion as being an instrument of enlightenment i mean you look at you look at someone like uh you know martin luther king jr who religion was was hand in hand with the civil rights movement and it's something that you see like like abolitionism is the same way most abolitionists they were drawing their principles not from reason but from their faith you you know yeah, Brad, you're exactly right. And this is one of the most difficult 
issues to wrestle with because what I say in the book is that faith in and of itself, even though it may be, uh, in a broad sense, counter-enlightenment is not a negative thing. In other words, what counter-enlightenment forces say is that reason alone is not enough for the human experience, that we need something more outside of, there's something that we don't, we can't reason ourselves to, which is what is faith, which plays a huge positive role in most people's lives. So it's not, the book is not anti-religion in any sense of the word. But, and in fact, to your point, it was faith-based beliefs that came out of the Second Great Awakening that led the abolitionist movement along with the temperance movement and many other progressive changes. It's really what gave women their first voice in politics. It, it was the, uh, the, faith, the faith-based movement. And it, it's ironic, just a, a little side note. You know, after the revolution in the, in the 1790s, m- men were off working and women were at home and often getting abused by their husbands who were drinking too much. And it's women who would go to these, these awakening meetings and become convinced of the importance of faith. And they expanded their voice and, uh, and started advocating for abolitionism based on faith-based principles. So you're mm. absolutely right. So here's the, here's the deal. One way to think about it is this. Faith-based principles, and, and we could go, and I even go in the book and talk about how, in some respects, that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is one of the most egalitarian Mm-hmm. Uh, radical enlightenment uh, um, uh, da- uh, uh, treatises, even though it's not driven by reason, it's mm-hmm. driven by uh, by a moral philosophy that's so powerful. Now, yeah. the only philosopher, and I, I'm not I'm not an expert in philosophy, but there's a phono- philosopher who's very important to me named Spinoza. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He's, he's yes, yes, seventeenth century. Spinoza was interesting because in his like second treatise. In his political treatise, he he talks about a set of principles for a social contract. They didn't they didn't he didn't call it a social contract, but in governance that are based on reason and another and, and the same set that are also derived from morality. So he he's the he's the philosopher that I found that most directly talks about the prescription of governance from both a moral faith based perspective and a reason perspective in a Rawlsian sense, John Rawls, like the, mm, the philosopher yes. John Rawls. Yeah. So, so that's quite interesting. And what I show in the book, what I talk about in the book is that, that, that faith-based movements have supported both what, what would be called a radical enlightened philosophy, an egalitarian philosophy, as well as a more moderate one. The dangers, I think, are when, when faith-based movements have aligned with government which have happened to your to your observation, it's happened less in the States than almost anywhere else in Europe, for sure. But I would still argue that, especially with the uh, since the 70s, maybe starting with in the 50s of the, of of the modern era, there's been an alliance between evangelical Christianity and power, which has been unhealthy. And we could we could debate that more. But 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 that but I talk about that. And, you know, going back to Billy Graham's association with anti-communism, which is really mm-hmm. where, where the roots of it started. And uh, this is a quite interesting topic that we could spend a lot of time on, but I, I think your point's right. Faith in and of itself is not nothing bad. And it's, it's, its role in the political uh, world is important for, for a moral compass, which is outside of this realm of reason. But, but here's what the radicals believe fundamentally. They, they believe they, some of them were deists. They believed in faith, 
but they thought that the faith-based realm was a separate realm from the from the social contract that to the, the degree it's separate from reason kept, needed to be kept separate yeah. and both were important in their lives but when it came to public problem solving using faith-based arguments didn't 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 do the trick for them and so I think it's it's that framework that I think would be useful to, to discuss in terms of where we are today um, when uh, arguments based on faith-based uh, 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 beliefs end up infringing on public policy. That, that may not be satisfying because you're asking a very tough question, but we can explore it more. <laughs> I think on, on, specific, on specific issues, we need to get into it more. I mean, the, one of the- well, great- and, I, and I see where you're coming from. I, I, see, I see the connection between, I mean- Christianity and the conservative party. I mean, not conservative party, conservative movement, the Republican party. It's, it's very strong and it's very real. And to argue that, that there are moral basis bases, whichever. Yeah. For, for the political principles of the Republican party that are based in faith rather than being based in reason. And that's, and I do definitely see that. And, and maybe what I'm not convinced of is, at least fully the argument against that, because like I said before, that's often been for the good in the United yes. States history. And so, and so is maybe the problem, not that religion is involved with government, but simply that religion is involved with government <clears throat> when religion's wrong. Well, uh, the way I've, I, I would, I would, mod- my, my view is that religion when, it, when it's decentralized is fundamental to society. When it's centralized is what it's, and thus- Would, would and you thus, say that it's centralized now? That's great, great question. So there's no question in my mind that a major aspect of the American experience has been the, the power and force of decentralized religion in building the fabric of society. What do I mean by that? I'm talking about the, the, the hundreds of thousands of local churches and synagogues and mosques, whatever, whatever faith that are community-based and that bring people together. That, that to me is, is that that creates the public square. Mm-hmm. So that decentralized aspect of religion is extremely powerful and a major part of America. When I say centralized, what I mean is when there's an overall national religious movement that's that. So Billy, let me use an example. And I'm, I'm not anti-angelical by any means, but Billy Graham was probably the most influential leader in the minds of eight presidents. He, he, he was yeah. very much a driving force in the political uh, agenda for, 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 for decades. I've read that how they consult me, with them. That's surprising. I don't think most yeah, people realize that. Yeah, that to me is, that to me is, and, and when, when, when and, and uh, you know, the reason why I'm a little bit tough on the evangelical church is because when evangelical, it's funny, evangelicals for many years were Democrats. They, you know, Jimmy, they were embraced by Jimmy Carter. Uh, Jimmy Carter was an evangelical Christian and he, he was the, it was basically during the, the Carter-Reagan era that evangelicals made the switch from Democrat to Republican because Carter didn't support, I mean, he wasn't an advocate of things like private schooling. And, you know, he, he, he basically didn't fulfill the agenda that many evangelicals wanted. And it was Lee Atwater in the 80s that were able to move evangelicals over to Reagan in a, in a big way. And that in and of itself was an interesting experiment. But going back to your question, I think that when faith is aligned with power at a centralized level, it's, it, it's, it could be quite dangerous because what's happening is it's approaching 
the model that you referred to, Brad, the European model of the, the Pope and the monarch together, making sure that, I mean, in essence, what, what, what faith was in the European model for centuries was the local priest was an officer of the Pope keeping everyone in, in line. Mm-hmm. He was, he was yes, yes. basically keeping the society moral. I mean, mm-hmm. let's remember, you know, there's a famous French moderate named Voltaire. And Voltaire had a great quote. He was, a pro- by, by the way, Voltaire himself was probably, uh, I don't know this for sure, but he was probably atheist. He was certainly a deist. And had a wicked and sense of humor. Wicked sense of humor. <laughs> so, so Voltaire was one who criticized. One of the great things about Voltaire was he criticized with so- satire yes. and, and sardonic humor sometimes the nature of the relationship between the king, the nobles, and the church. Right, but at the right. end, he had a famous quote, and I, and I apologize, but for, for, your re, for your listeners, I'll say it in French first. Um, si, si Dieu n'existait pas, il faudrait la volonté, which means if God didn't exist, we would have to invent him. And what he meant was that even though I'm critical of the church, we need religion to keep the people in line. If God did, doesn't exist, we better invent him. In other words, to, to keep a moral code in society. Mm-hmm. And that's very telling to me. And, and the European model was much more of this collusion model where the church colluded with the, with the powers. Now, right, what, what right, I see directly. today, now let, let me, let me, and this is, you know, we're getting into interesting ground here. When I see, uh, the, the the alliance between the conservative uh, movement in America with religion in terms of talking about issues like uh, abortion and uh, Second Amendment stuff. When, when I see some of the way that stuff plays out, it very much looks to me like the old collusion in Europe. There's, there's in other words, there, there, there's money that's following this, this uh, influence mm-hmm. to... to to get politicians to, to appeal to people's religious beliefs in a top-down way to make them vote a certain way. And, and to me, I'm not going to say it's the same, Brad, but there are elements that we can learn from looking at the, the old uh, European collusion model between power and religion. Okay, I can see that. I can see that. This really is interesting, and I, and I really appreciate the way you're, you're navigating it so carefully, Seth, uh, and, and, and in good faith. Pun not intended, um, <laughs> because this is this is an actual divide. To I listen to a great deal of of debates between, you know, at the level of religion itself between between people of religious belief and people without religious belief, and 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 so often they're talking past each other, uh, and mm-hmm. and to the degree that I agree with them, uh, I tend, I despite being someone of of for whom personal faith is is fundamental and plays a large aspect of my life. I tend to find that that the people with the religious perspective, to the degree that something is good, you can make a reasonable case for it. You can. You don't have to rely simply on on the the assertion of the faith, right? To the degree that to the degree right. that your faith leads you to beliefs that are worthwhile and good for society, or good for your individuals, or good for people, right? You can find that evidence. And to right. some degree, there there is a. I, I don't want to say laziness because I don't want to, but but. But to some degree, there has been a laziness in cases where where there were things that that religion believed was good, and they believed it was good, and they took it on faith, and as such, didn't do the work necessary to really explore it and to then be able to argue it and state the benefits, right? And so I I actually really like the challenge of 
of of putting to faith groups do the groundwork if this is good yeah, it needs to be more than yes, just dogma yes yeah. you can't you're and, and and with regards to what you were saying about them actually being in power and using it from from a perspective of faith that is i i think that is absolutely appalling and, and extremely dangerous i do not oh, want that i don't want my my religious leaders in charge i don't want anybody's religious leaders in charge of of a group like this right and, it, and it's not just because of past abuses even a benign even kindly no, people it. would be i mean it, look it's it's one of the fundamental dilemmas of, of human society over the course of a millennia which is that faith is so important to us yet i mean if you go back to like eras like the inquisition or the crusade yeah, yeah, faith yes, has been responsible for so much human yeah. suffering mm-hmm. so like the, how do you reconcile that i mean now we're getting into like deep philosophical ground which is it's going to kind of be hard to resolve this on 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 a on a, on a, a podcast <laughs> we're going to we'll, we'll spend 15 minutes it'll be done we'll just but, let but everybody know like, even the even the political the social contract philosophers like there's a famous you know the the, the, the split between hobbes and rousseau which were both they're both moderates but Hobbes believed very much that the, the human nature is quite evil. <laughs> I mean, qu- quite depraved, <laughs> and, and that if we didn't regulate, we'd have a state of you know war of everyone against everyone. And if you read Hobbes' Leviathan, you have a pretty negative perspective on on the nature of human morality. Whereas Rousseau, on the contrary, I mean, he believed human morality was sound, uh, that it was society itself that corrupted it. So, so they came at it from very different angles. I'm only bringing this up to say that this has been explored uh, for for yes, old conversation for ages, and it's really, I think it's really important. I struggle with it myself because I am a person of faith, but I also can't. When I see some of the things that are done in the name of religion, it drives me crazy. But so, so but then again, like you know, Martin Luther King. You, I think somebody, brought, you were, Dan or Brad brought this up, was incredibly counter enlightenment. And that for him, faith was the argument for, for what today, for a very radical enlightenment principle. Mm-hmm. And that's what, when you go through American Schism, the book, what you see is that these things collide. Often it is a, a faith based counter enlightenment argument that's making the case for a principle which is quite consistent with the radical enlightenment. Yes. And, and that's that that's why this stuff is not so easy, but it's fascinating to explore. It is. And, and maybe that's worth pointing out is I think part of the confusion that comes on on my part who just spent all week reading this book is that sometimes the flow of the book feels like radical enlightenment is the clear answer, right? Radical enlightenment this is where you you know it's clearly it's clear that you think radical enlightenment is the solution. You know, these are the principles that are correct. And you've got the moderate enlightenment and counter enlightenment that more often than not is getting in the way versus that debate and that interaction between them, that the schism is actually good, which is, which is part of what you're saying here, right? That that back and forth between the moderate and the radicals is actually good for society. That, that James Madison bridging those two is actually part of the solution rather than the problem and, you, and not only you're, you're yeah. absolutely so here's the subtlety of the, the book starts off brad and, and i you, you've done your reading well it, it, it's, it, it's there's a head fake in americans because i want to give it away for the re- listeners because i hope they read the book <laughs> well, but yeah, the head it, fake is it's that it starts out arguing that the radical model because of the re- notion of representative democracy bottom-up government and and the the de- the, the focus of freedom of religion is the superior model but it ends up recognizing and reconciling that that all three, certainly faith-based movements, and both the radical moderate would be the notion of expertise. I mean, if if 
Brad, if I had a, a brain tumor, I'm not going to go to anybody to solve, to sur do surgery mm -hmm. on it. Mm -hmm. Expertise matters. The moderate model of, of giving government to the most educated and, and sophisticated, or at least experienced, there's some, I mean, Hamilton was a genius. And he wanted geniuses running government. So right now, because of this, what I referred to before is this populism movement, we have this extreme distrust of institutions and elitism. And that there's some of that that's unhealthy. I mean, people who've studied and, and, and know how to have the expertise to solve a problem should be allowed to, to work on that problem. You know, one of the, the great books that I reference in American Schism is a book called The Constitution of Knowledge by Jonathan Rauch. I don't know if you're familiar with it. But, but what this book shows is that it is the moderate model. It's very much the, uh, the uh, uh, expertise-based model that's given rise to incredible human prosperity. I mean, let's just take a step back for the list. You said, uh, let me say the name again, Jonathan Rauch. This is one. Jonathan I, Rauch. I think, I think I've tracked all the other names you mentioned, but Jonathan Rauch. Try, try to read his book. He, he, he discusses how we've built over the last couple of centuries a constitution of knowledge that's decentralized. Now, why mm -hmm. is this important? Well, and, you know, the Enlightenment, of course, which is where this comes out of, has gotten a bad rap over the last couple of decades. It but sure here's has. The thing. <laughs> it sure has. Right. But, but to me, he, we... we, we uh, we ignore the Enlightenment framework at our own peril. Let me give you, your listeners, a few stats. 200 years ago, life expectancy on the planet was 31 years. And now it's almost over 70 in almost every country. 200 years ago, one in five children didn't survive till age four. Today, almost all do. 200 years ago, four-fifths of the world lived in incredible poverty. At that same poverty level adjusted for today, about one fifth of the world lives in that level. Now, so, so by almost any measure, we've made more progress over the last 200 years than in the prior 2000. Mm -hmm. and, and it's, it's hard to argue against that when you're looking at things like, you know, how long you live and how wealthy you are. So th that is the fruits of the Enlightenment. I mean, Let me add to I, that that it accelerated, right? Too yeah. that it, it wasn't it wasn't a steady pace. This was a the rate increased mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it, it's we, exciting. We, this 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 framework of using the Enlightenment a combination of empirical observation, data, and reason has 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 unleashed problem solving abilities that have led us to solve incredible problems in, incredibly efficiently. Now that's the framework that I'm convinced we can't abandon because that's how we're going to solve climate change pandemics. We need that constitution of knowledge to, to, to drive progress, to solve the problems that are so severe facing us today. But what's happening in, to, in, in society today is you have many forces willing to just throw away that, the, the notion of, of an objective truth and data. And that's pretty dangerous to me if, if, if we want to continue to solve the major problems that we face. So, so now I'm, you know, we're going in a different direction here, but it's quite important because the, the way I bring it back to Brad's question is that it's why the enlightenment framework in and of itself with both moderate and radical strands, but, but a, a fact-based empirical and rational approach to problem solving is fundamental, even in the, with the existence of faith as well. Yes, I 
having some sense from reading the book of, of what your what your own political background may be, or in terms of in terms of how you, if if we had to label you, we probably could after reading it. But those labels are fairly useless in a discussion like this. Um, but at that same time, you, you you're constantly coming to surprising conclusions and the things that were you know. Thomas Jefferson was the this first one, but it, but it, then it kept going from there. And then as you you, you were talking policies in the end, um, there was so much we agreed with, and ranked voting was another one that you brought up there. Let me just say something on that uh, on what you were just talking about with with regards to the absolute truth in some sense that there's that there is actual truth that you can find, mm-hmm. and that and that reasoning about it will get you closer, and you can empirically test things, and you can find this right. That that allows for progress. That basic Absolutely. principle allows for progress, it's and people have. I'm shocked at how many people will throw that away. And yeah. uh, there's the post, there's lots of, you're familiar with them. You mentioned them in the book, but some of the postmodern influences that reject uh, yeah. reason and reject uh, or, or, or simply argue that man is not primarily a rational being or can't be a rational being. And as right. such is subject to these things. How do you, how did you come to the conclusion or what is it in your personal experience? Why, why do you think that there is objective truth and reason is worthwhile? Cause that's, that's well, less common than, Right. There's, there's no question that that human beings can be quite irrational and individual human decision making is often completely biased and has trouble. Uh, so, so the postmodernists are right about certain things. But but I think what you see is that in the constitution of knowledge, if we, if we use that term, we've built certain things to check for or to balance the 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 tendency we all individually have for irrationality. You're so, talking like, like institutions, right? Institutions. Think, so, think so like like the scientific academy. Yes. You know, we're all biased, but because the scientific academy uses data that has to be published and shared, and goes through peer review, and is divorced from personal feeling, it's supposed to be objective, rational, empirically driven. I mean, those are things that bias that, that tend to ca- account for the individual biases that we all may have. And they're really important. Now, we've built those into our institutions. It's why, to me, our institutions are so, so strong, like things like uh, whatever they are, the State Department, the, you know, and so when I see people on the left and right extreme, both tearing down our institutions, it's quite yeah. troubling. Because I think our institutions have served us very well. The news, and, and, the news institutions that you, you yeah. mentioned several times uh, right. used to have various mechanisms within them in which they would check these things and they Absolutely. would they would temper the biases and they would remove, uh, you know, the some of the polemical parts and or the, the partisan issues. And and those things is right. they're not easily rebuilt. And it's a and it's a tragedy when such things are so are discarded for political purposes. And I think looking at the history of, of something like of these issues is really important. So when when ever since the printing press, there's always been this trend towards what today sometimes what sometimes called yellow journalism, publishing stuff that's totally crazy and that's based on. <laughs> but but there's oh but the journalistic profession arose out of a, a, a spirit to counter that about pursuing objective truth. And while everything, of course, always has some bias, the goal was to eliminate as much bias as possible. And I'm talking about in the spirit of the Walter Cronkite, yeah. you know, news era. Mm-hmm. That was yeah. the that was yeah. the goal. And of course, you see that being eroded a lot today, which is a whole other problem, which I go, will speak to a bit about in the book. But I, I, I think your overall point is right in that, you know, we, we, it, we need to not throw away some of the 
tools and mechanisms and 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 norms we've used to build this constitution of knowledge yes and it's quite we certainly refine them but yes well, yep. let's not destroy things that are useful so seth one question that that i have that i had as i was as i was reading your book is especially t- looking at early american founding you know you've got thomas jefferson and and these other radicals who were very much against centralization. You know what I mean? Power to the states was a huge component of that. And it's something they pushed for. In fact, you know, you can argue that's part of the purpose of the Senate was having the Senate be chosen by state governments instead of by the people, giving up democracy in exchange for decentralization. Education was another element of this. Uh, Jefferson and others, the the local education was, you know, was the local level that these things were. Mm -hmm. Which is something that he pushed for in Virginia. To some degree, that's still true, right? But 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 then but then later on, as you talk about other radical movements, many of them, especially in the 20th century, were were actually centralizing rather than decentralizing. I mean, you look you look at FDR, you look at I mean, so many of them were I mean, you look at even, you know, you talk about reconstruction in the Civil War. It's centralizing over decentralizing that bringing more power to the federal government in order to protect the rights of the people, you know, in order to preserve those egalitarian principles, you're bringing more power to the to the central government, but which is in itself a contradiction. At least attention. Yes. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's it's, and I'm just trying to reconcile that. And how do you reconcile that? Okay. so so first of all, once again, you're exactly right about these tensions and seemingly being seemingly contradictory. So let's start by recognizing that, you know, with all of we talked before about the Declaration of Independence and the credo and what it stood for and this notion of egalitarian inalienable rights. But the great contradiction of the revolution, of course, was slavery. And it, it, it was left, you know, largely unaddressed. And mm-hmm. so it is quite ironic in almost a, a astounding way how in the period of Reconstruction, which you mentioned, what you end up having is under the auspices of states' rights, the South is trying to recreate the antebellum era by mm-hmm. using their, their what is essentially the decentralized principles behind the Constitution and the federal government is advocating for, a, let's call it a more egalitarian approach to race, at least in society, where the role of the centralized power, namely the Union forces originally, and then during Reconstruction, the actual mechanisms that were that were being used by what they were then were the radical Republicans in Congress, mm-hmm. uh, Thaddeus Stevens and 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 um, uh, Charles Sumner, even after Lincoln's death. Those were very much, you know, centralizing forces. So that seem, seemingly irreconcilable. It's, you're right. That's 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 the incredible part about why I, when I started out, I said that these different forces end up taking surprising turns through through our history, and and the, the, you're never going to completely reconcile that. I mean, centralized government can be very dangerous. I mean, it, look at what's going on in in. Russia and Ukraine today. I mean, the, the whole premise of autocracy, which is built on whether it's a strong man or a centralized power dictating how things should be top down, you know, is, is very much a force in the political mechanisms of the world. And what I argue in the book is that that, that fundamental, like transcending all of the issues we have today, all of the debates we have, one of the core issues really is do we believe in a government that's top down or, or bottom up of the people? What, what is our vision of, of government? And 
even within America, we've had trouble with how we feel about that. Let me, let me give mm-hmm. you one, one analogy. And I know I'm going on tangents. I apologize. No, you're just <laughs> fine. The, the original idea of the Constitution and, and the government as the founders envisioned it was bottom up of the people, as Jefferson mm-hmm. stated in the Declaration. Mm-hmm. And that's why these, these, these amendments and these controls on centralized power were so, so very important. But yet, during the Second Great Awakening, our founding itself, the, our entire experience of the creation of the country, was uh, characterized by a revisionism that was very much religious. So, the, uh, the, and the way I'll, I'll frame it is: there's a famous painting done, I think, in 1812 or something. I'm not, I don't remember what year. And the picture dep- depicts the following: it, it shows God handing down the Constitution to General Washington in the same way that, that God handed the tablets to Moses. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a, now, let's think about that image for a second. First of all, it's ironic because the Constitution was not supposed to be set in stone. So mm-hmm. having, stone, <laughs> having stone tablets was, is, I think, pretty ironic in this painting. But more important, the whole premise of the revolutionary era was that government was bottom up. It wasn't handed down by by, mm-hmm. by some by God. It was we decided as people because we were given our these incredible capacities by our Creator of reason and empiricism. And we we decided to form a society, and it's it's a bottom up. So so that we so it's so ironic to me that for much of our early history after the revolution, this top down model of government ended up becoming a dominant force. Now I think we're struggling with it with it today. I mean we could if, if if you would characterize the, 19th, the 20th century as a battle between this open, free society that we have, battling against forms of totalitarian communism or fascism, that was kind of the battle of the century. We wanted a free society to be able to prevail. I would characterize the 21st century as a, a battle between that same free society and what's becoming more and more the model for, for, for governance over the world, which is autocracy. I mean, if you, whether it's Xi in China or, or uh, Putin or Orban or, or Erdogan in, in Turkey, these are top-down governments, uh, uh, you know, which of course Trump loved that model for, for good or not. And, and I guess that's, that, that's one of the things that Ukraine represents, this war that we're, is, is causing so much suffering today is this battle between an open society that's trying to have a more of a democratic model, let's call it a bottom-up model, and Putin's aspirations for the great Russia again. So, I mean, that is, a, that is kind of, a, in my view, a defining presence, uh, a, a defining um, tension in this, cent- in this century and how that's going to play out. So that's why this notion of you, you, whether we talk about as it, as it, as it, manifests in terms of states' rights or decentralized power and central government, as, as in the examples, Brad, that we're discussing now, or more generally about this battle between you know, decentralized free societies and societies where the conversation is controlled mm-hmm. by an autocrat. I mean, mm-hmm. this, is a, this is something that is very much a, a factor that we're living through. No, and, and, and I agree with that completely. And in, in terms of the the autocratic control. I mean, that's something that we've seen. We've seen Trump from Trump. That's something that we saw during the COVID era 
when it came, you know, not not from Trump, but from the other side in terms yeah. to restriction of what you can say about this, you know, these yeah. important issues. And I mean, like, for example, I am not a fan of Trump, but, you know, him being removed from the conversation by force was something I wasn't a fan of either. You know what I mean? That's because right. of the implications that that holds for for having that discussion is the only yeah. way to have a true free discussion is to allow people who are wrong to contribute to that discussion. I agree. But to follow up on that, most of the structural changes you recommend, I mean, a lot of them absolutely are decentralizing in that focusing on bottom up, you know, things like term limits, you know, trying to make it more a representation of the people. I absolutely see that. I don't see anything that's decentralizing in terms of classical federalism. Is that because you believe it's no longer an effective solution or it's simply not a priority for you? One of the things that we've talked about before, Brad and I, is that that one of the ways that you can reduce the partisanship and things is, is to decrease yeah, have the, less have less national have less power stake, and more right? more at the states and right. shift if, the conversation if, that if way. My, if my life depends on it, if my livelihood depends on who wins the federal election, obviously that's going to increase how partisan I am in some sense. You know, I become more desperate. I become more engaged in the parties. I become more like, well, maybe I don't like this guy, but he's better than the other guy. You know, I'm more willing to compromise in principles and things like that. So yes, is the answer. I do. I do think that there needs to be a healthy uh, balance. I mean, and this is where I'm a Madisonian. I very much believe there's a healthy balance between the need for some centralized governmental institutions, as well as the need to make sure that much is decentralized and localized. And I think I think that balance is fundamental. And I think it has been out of whack at times. Now, I'll say I will say that in some ways, you know, as much as the federal government seems like it's infringing on a lot of our liberties and rights, uh, I think in some ways it's completely uh, abdicated its role in certain important things. So, you know, ever since the Reagan era, we believe that kind of government's bad and it's, it's, it's become, de, you know, de deregulation has become a huge issue. But there are some things that I think the government, I mean, if you, from an economic perspective, when you have things like like externalities, the government has to correct for them. Let, let me get, use an example. You know, we're facing this incredible climate crisis, which I think more and more people realize that the data show that we are going through a period of, of change in the in the in the in the climate, which is definitely going to have negative ramifications. And some believe it's quite extreme. You know, it, it, the economic model model of a free market of a capitalistic market today is very much perverted because the costs of pollution are not in the equation. So, it, you know, the, typically in an economic model, the role of government is to internalize the externality. So if, if we had a federal government or a world government, that, for that matter, that agreed on a carbon tax that made firms pay for their share of emitting carbon, now if we're two competitors in a free market, if all else being equal, if the way of increasing profits is to reduce carbon costs, we're, there's a market mechanism for, improve, for addressing climate change. So my point being is that the federal government has a role to do in certain things when the market fails from an economic perspective. You know, I, I was a student of economics, so that framework I think is quite important to me. So the real question becomes is where is the, the locus of 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 leverage to be able to do that? Is it at the local level? For things like, for many issues in life, schooling, roads, I think more and more it should be at the local level. 
But there are certain things because and I'm using the example of climate change, because if we decide as a local society of uh, St. Louis, uh, Missouri, if we decide to address climate change in a local manner, it's not going to be very effective <laughs> because it's a problem that affects the whole planet. Mm -hmm. So, so some, sometimes the locus of authority has to be national or international, like with the climate change accords. So what you're really asking is about when solutions should be generated at a decentralized level or at a centralized one. And my answer would probably be whenever efficient, it should be left decentralized. But yes. there are times when like having a foreign policy where it yes, would be yes. hard, it would be hard to, or, 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 you know, having a national defense, that's not going to be effective at the right. local level. Yeah. So, and that, and that's uh, the yeah. exact same argument that the founders made for the constitution over the articles of confederation is right. these issues aren't being resolved effectively yes, yeah. on a state level, interstate commerce, national defense, these things aren't working the way we have it set up now. We need something else. So yeah. I, I totally understand that. And I think we would, uh, we'd probably disagree on, on some of those, of those issues. And that's just fine. I mean, yeah. I want to, I want to push back on the market stuff because, because we are big free market advocates, but, but that might be for another time for yes, a we'll longer say, discussion. We'll say that, but in, in the principle that you were articulating that the lowest possible level that it can be handled uh, and that there yes. is there are clear things that, that you could say objectively, these things are better handled at the local level um, that, that I think you could get widespread agreement on. Uh, for, a, for an alarming amount of, uh, of recent years from both parties, it, it feels like the solution is to do it at the federal level, like because that's that's where the most power is. And so if you want to mm -hmm. get something, really get something done, you, you have to do it there. And it's just... I mean, it's, it's look, in one way, you know, for me, history can act as a solve for our wounds if only we'd apply it. And I think that this experience of how we got to the Constitution and this balance between uh, uh, centralized versus decentralized power is quite instructive. I mean, there was, let's, let's look at it this way. In 1776, the colonists basically objected to being taxed unfairly and to being forced to host standing armies of the British. 11 years later, after we declare independence and win a war, one of the, the first two powers we give to a centralized uh, structure is the ability to tax and to raise an army. Mm -hmm. isn't, isn't that a little, isn't that a little surprising? Like how did we, we just got, got, got through fighting a war to prevent Britain from doing that. And now we're going to localize that in a centralized. If I'm sitting in Virginia or in, or in, in North Carolina, that's quite surprising. And again, the way to get that passed in the Madisonian sense was to ensure that we had these 10 amendments, which even though we need fe the, fe the federal power to do certain things like pay for the war, we also need to make sure that everything that's not explicitly stated is done locally. I mean, that was the premise, Larry. That, that, mm -hmm. that, let's not forget that. It's a very powerful idea. I and mean, maybe that Madison was the most brilliant of our founders and how he recognized, you know, he was originally a federalist, but of course he was always a Republican and allied with Jefferson. So he, he kind of went back and forth. He was the only founder, I would argue, that was able to reconcile the, the initial schism that we talked about, the, the, that the radical and moderate schism. But I think over the course of his life, he became more skeptical of centralized power. I mean, he, you know, he, he definitely um, worked closely with Hamilton in the drafting of the Constitution, but over time, he, he recognized some of the, the, the faults. Anyway, there's wonder, wonderful stuff written about this. <laughs> there, there is. I, I wish we had more time. All right. Uh, 
Did there any final things you wanted to you want to say, Seth? Well, what I would say a couple of things. So th- these issues are tricky, and the, the, the important point is that even though we might disagree on any individual issue, I think the the history, which I mentioned, is so important, shows that when we have a respectful discussion, even when we disagree and we compromise, we usually make progress, mm-hmm. and and that's why this. FU campaign or fighting on reason with reason, I'm, I'm more, it's more important to me that we change how we talk to each other than any particular political solution. So I, I would rather that we reestablish a productive discussion that's respectful and that doesn't resort to ad hominem attacks and make each other the enemy. That's the most important thing rather than any individual policy. Yeah. And I think, I think we're going to agree wholeheartedly with, with you on that. You know, I Amen love that. I love what you say about in groups and distancing yourself from your own in groups that you can think outside of those in groups and reach to people who are outside those in groups. And I think that's something that you're absolutely right is going to be a game changer and absolutely necessary. Right. You highlight the, the historical perspective and things. One of the things that it allows you to do in a lot of cases is to get out of that, get out of the place that you're at and the view that you're in and, and, and start to see more. And it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's freeing, right? It's, it really is. It allows you to have conversations in which you actually learn and grow and uh, and right. can adapt. And it's well, it's, well. So that that's one of the reasons. And I know we don't have, we're out of time, but I'd love to come back and talk about the example of immigration because it's such a contentious issue today. And yet, both extremes are. If you look at the history of our country, we can't have completely closed borders and we can't have open borders. We need a balance. And the reason why this is so interesting to me, I'll just I'll just leave you listeners with this with this one last thought is we had a plan, a, a bipartisan comprehensive immigration reform bill uh, around, let's see, around nine years ago that almost passed. And it had a whole array of solutions to many immigration problems. But the point of the bill was that it was extremely detailed. And it was it used data and it came up with what essentially were compromises that both sides hated it. The left hated it because it had quotas or limits on immigration. They weren't called quotas. And the right hated it because it had a pathway to citizenship for dreamers. But my point is that it had a framework of so, a set of solutions that was quite comprehensive. Now we've changed direction and we've been arguing shouting at each other about building walls and open borders for nine years. And we're much further away from a solution. Like we yes, haven't solved yes. anything. Mm-hmm. No, so, they, uh, they don't even talk about it anymore. Yeah, we, don't talk about know, it. we all hate each other. But <laughs> yet the truth is, is that Im- immigration has been a fuel to help this country, but it has to be controlled. We can't just open our board. So, so this, needs to, this is a perfect case where the right answer is a set of compromises that achieve certain things based on economic and, and moral purposes. And what's, what's great about this topic, um, Brad and Dan, is that over the history of our country, We've had different political uh, opinions on immigration, depending on our needs. When we needed workers, we were quite open to immigration. Other times we were quite closed. I mean, we, it, we've had a pendulum swing on that alone. And yet we discuss it today without talking about our history or, or you know, it, it, it's become this emotional football mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. really not helpful in solving the problem. So I'll, I'll leave you on that note. I, I, I'd be happy to come back and talk more about it. We'd love to talk uh, immigration and uh, your meritocracy and things. I think that's an important discussion that, that really is at a core of a lot of the issues. And, and Absolutely. And that would forward. be a fantastic conversation. Right. 
Guys, I, I really you, enjoyed this. You, you, likewise. Thank you, for, thank you for what you're doing with this. I think it's terrific. And thank you for uh, being interested in American Schism. Um, I will tell your listeners that they can find the book wherever books are sold on Amazon or et cetera. And um, I, I appreciate being able to talk about it. Thank you for coming on. It's a fun journey through history. I like how it captures your experience in addition to some of the knowledge that you've gleaned. With that, thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks and have a wonderful day.